0: Let me begin this morning with the words of Mark Twain, who said, It ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And many of us know what what he means. Uh, The parts of the Bible that we do understand are often the most challenging for us, aren't they? But on the flip side, sometimes we can study difficult Bible passages and come away more confused than when we started. Even the apostle Peter confessed that some things that his fellow apostle Paul wrote were hard to understand. And if Peter had trouble understanding Paul, we too shouldn't be surprised when we struggle to understand some parts of the Bible. Now think about these simple words of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. I think that's the sort of thing that Mark Twain was talking about. There's nothing tricky about those words. There's no translation problems. This verse, which we often call the golden rule, states a principle for conduct that is timeless in its simplicity. But yet putting that into practice is difficult, isn't it? We face the same challenge when it comes to the text this morning from 1 Thessalonians. The words are clear enough, but will we do what they say? You know, in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Paul teaches us how to love others and how to live intentionally so our lives will earn the respect of others. Now I'm convinced that we need this message because in many ways, the church has lost its witness to the world. Somewhere along the way, we have lost sight of what we call everyday Christianity. Even though we live in a high-tech world, the needs of the heart have not changed. People still want to know, what is the message that can change my life? Where's the message that tells me that my sins can be forgiven? Where's the message that can give me a fresh start in life? We need to hear what God is saying to us today. And as we read these words, I invite you to listen with your heart for God's message. Our passage contains two exhortations that we need to take seriously. We see the first one in verses nine and 10, and the second in verses 11 and 12, and each one describes how the church or what the church owes to the world around us. First of all, the church owes the world an example of how important it is that we love each other. The Apostle Paul begins with this simple reminder in the first part of verse 9, but we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other. Now, I think it's an interesting way that he puts this. I don't need to remind you about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. You see, the word for the kind of love described here is the same as it's written in older translations of the Bible called brotherly love. And the Greek word here is Philadelphia. Not the city, not the sports teams, but the word refers to the love of family members for one another. It comes from two Greek words that are often joined together. Phylos, which means tender affection, fondness, devotion, in a word that implies that we have an obligation to love. And adelphos, sometimes translated as brother, or literally means one born of the same womb. So the, pub, so the word Philadelphia literally means having tender affection uh, for those born of the same womb. It's easy to understand why Paul chose this word to describe how these believers were to love each other. All Christians have a common beginning, don't we? Through the new birth in Jesus Christ. Everyone who has committed their life to Christ comes to God the same way. God doesn't have three different plans of salvation. Plan A for Protestants, plan B for Catholics, and plan C for everybody else. Jesus said in John 3, 3, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born again means to receive new life, through personal faith in Jesus Christ. It means to be born from God's womb. So you might say that everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to us. We owe all believers Philadelphia. Tender affection and true devotion. Now I want you to notice three facts about this kind of love. First, this kind of love is taught to us by God himself. Verse 9b, for God himself has taught you to love one another. The word translated taught here uh, by God, taught by God, appears nowhere else in the New Testament. It speaks not of a lesson that we learn in the classroom, but a truth that we learn through a relationship. So let me ask you this. What's the best way, for instance, to learn French? Some of you might say, move to France, live with a French family, speaking French uh, uh, all the time, immerse yourself in French culture, watch French TV, read French newspapers, all of that, the atmosphere of France will enter into your bloodstream. Well, the same is true regarding love. We learn to love by associating with loving people. Love isn't taught, it's caught. And because we come from the womb of God, we share his basic nature, which is love. And therefore, love ought to be the most natural thing for every believer to express. We love because God is love. It's a family trait. And that's why Paul doesn't have to teach it. To be a Christian is to enter into a fellowship, a family like love. Christ's followers are to treat each other with kindness and with grace. The second, uh, then, is this, this kind of love reaches out to uh, love all of God's children. Look at verse 10, the first part of verse 10. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers throughout Macedonia. Notice the phrase, all the believers. But you know what? All is not easy to do. Most of us love some of the people we know. Maybe you're really a good person and you love even most of the people you know, but all the people we know, that's a tough assignment. Let's be clear we are to love all true believers everywhere for all time. That's difficult because most of us have some inner reservations. We don't like this group of people. We don't like the folks from that denomination. Maybe we're not comfortable being in a service where everybody prays out loud at the same time, and we don't understand people who worship by raising their hands or by using a prayer book. We may distrust those who have a different worship style or a different interpretation of certain passages of scripture. See, there will always be points of difference between God's people. Redemption in Christ does not homogenize the church. Believers have disagreed on important issues for over 2,000 years. I don't believe we should abandon our doctrinal or cultural distinctives, but if we take Paul seriously, then we must seek to love other Christians who may see the world differently than we do. The love of God is not limited not by nation or ocean or tribe or tongue or custom or clothing or race or politics or caste or any other human condition. When the love of God captures us, our hearts will be as big as God's, reaching to the ends of the earth. And then third, Paul says, this kind of love should always be increasing in our life. Look at the last half of verse 10. Even, dear, even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. What does it mean for our love to increase? It means that we should increase in our sympathy for people in need. We should increase in our patience for those who are struggling. We should increase in our tolerance toward those with whom we disagree. The most powerful recommendation for any church is this, that the congregation loves each other and loves the people around them. There are people in the community who would give anything to see that happen in every church. People want to be where love is demonstrated. And when unchurched people are asked what, it, what they want in a church, the answer always comes back the same, that we are looking for a caring church. We are looking for a church that loves people and loves its community. Not, they don't say a friendly church, they don't respond by asking for a relevant church or a church with plenty of programs for their kids. Not even a church where the Bible is clearly taught or a pastor wears skinny jeans and has spiky hair. You know, as, all, as good as all those things might be, they don't touch the heart cry of this generation. They want a place where they are deeply loved. And when non-believing people in the world find that kind of place, they will stand in line to get in. So how does God help us to grow in this area? Well, by putting us in situations that force us to practice Christian love. Over the years, I've observed God doing this again and again. He allows two people who have difficulties with each other, sometimes to the point of anger and bitterness, uh, to get together. And he does this because the only way we learn to love is by dealing with unlovely people. I've seen it happen between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between co-workers and neighbors and fellow students and relatives, people who start out disliking each other end up sometimes becoming very close friends. The author C.S. Lewis pointed out that we may talk so much about loving people in general that we love no one in particular, and I think that's particularly true in churches. Churches. One writer graphically describes the problem of loving the unlovely. He says, some people are just miserable, miserably unlovable. The kind of smelly person with the nasty cough who sits next to you on the bus, shoving his newspaper in your face. The crude couple in the neighborhood who has that barking dog. The smooth liar who took you in so completely last week. What are you supposed to feel toward those people except revulsion and distrust and resentment and a justified desire to have nothing to do with them? Three years ago, we went through a bitter political season in this country, and now we've embarked on another one. Christians seem as deeply divided as I can remember, and some Christians cannot fathom how other believers could have voted for that person And that person was maybe the winner or the loser, depending on how you voted. It would seem that we shouldn't expect Christians to always agree, not even on how we vote. But in times like this, when our feelings run deep and tempers run short, we need to extend grace to each other. And even though I may not understand the way you voted or you understand the way I voted— Uh, If you're my brother or sister in Christ, we share a common faith that runs deeper than who occupies the White House. And we need to find ways to love each other, especially in times like this. We are taught by God to love each other. May God help us to do that. In many cases, we will simply have to agree to disagree. In some cases, we may find it easier to love each other from a little bit of a distance, you know, at least for a while. We can't love everyone the same way or to the same degree, but if we are Christ followers, then we need to find ways to love each other even when loving is hard to do. It's not magic, but rather it is the power of the Holy Spirit working in us that causes us to love even the unlovely. The church is to be a community who loves each other. We owe it to the Lord, we owe it to each other, and we owe it to the watching world. We need to let the love of God abound here. We need to let Christian sympathy go out to those who are in need. We need to take the banner of God's concern into the community and pray for one another, and especially for those with whom we might disagree. We need to let our hearts grow in love for all of God's family. We owe the world that kind of an example. But there's a second exhortation in this passage that we take seriously as well. The church owes the world an example of how important it is to live a balanced life. Look at verse 11. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands just as we instructed you before. Now, to understand this verse, we need to know that in Thessalonica, there was a great deal of excitement about when Jesus would come back to earth. When he was with them, Paul taught about the imminent return of Christ. And the word imminent means at any moment. So taking Jesus' words that he would one day return to this earth, there was an expectation that it would happen in their lifetime. Maybe Jesus would come back today, or tomorrow, or next week, or a year from now. We know that whenever people people get excited about the Lord's return, there's always some people who will take it to an extreme. You may remember a worldwide commotion, a few years ago, when a man named Harold Camping predicted that the end of the world would be on May 21st, 2011. In answer to that kind of extremism, Paul issues this strong call for balanced living. And he gives us three commands, each one that answers a common problem. The first, he says, is a command to live a quiet life. Now, this is the answer to the problem of restlessness, I think, in our society. The word quiet comes from the Greek meaning Sabbath rest. It refers to the end of work, the end of conflict. It implies the kind of peace that comes after warfare. And Paul says, make it your goal to live quietly. I think we need this admonition because our ambition tends to be noisy, to make a splash, to make a name for ourselves, to get ahead, to rise above the crowd. Eugene Peterson translates this phrase with two words. Stay calm. It means be less frantic. Be more settled in your life. I ran across the following quote the other day. You will never be happy until you learn to enjoy what you already have. I love that. You will never be happy until you Learn to enjoy what you already have. Those are good words for us to hear, that we spend thousands of dollars every year seeking happiness when the answer is learning to enjoy what God has already given us. Now these words of Paul fit into our workaholic culture, don't they? See, we live in crazy busy times with little sense of stillness and rest. We work harder to achieve less. We are a generation of hyperactive, overgrown kids who stay perpetually hyped up on caffeine and sugar and TV and music and our motto is often get on the bus or get out of my way. Somewhere I found a poem recently that describes our contemporary life and it goes like this. This is the age of the half-red page and the quick bash and the mad dash, the bright night with nerves that are tight. This is the age of the plane hop with a brief stop, the lamp tan in a short span, the big shot in a good spot, the brain strain and heart pain, catnaps till the spring snaps, and then the fun is done. Those words fit our culture, don't they? It's the nature of life in the 21st century. We live in this hurry up, get it done now, grab the gusto world, and we measure our success by how much we accomplish each day. No wonder we're restless, and we're edgy, and we're tired, and we're nervous, and we're easily distracted. We talk, about, we talk, but we have nothing to say, and we listen, but we don't hear a word. Some of you may recognize the name of Peter Marshall. He was the chaplain of the United States Senate in the years just after World War II, and he's remembered for his prayers that opened each session of the Senate. Here's a prayer that he prayed on May the 8th, 1947. He said, God, help us to do our very best this day and to be content with today's troubles so that we shall not borrow the troubles of tomorrow. Save us from the sin of worrying, lest stomach ulcers be the badge of our lack of faith. Amen. Secondly, Paul's command to us is to mind our own business. You know, it's really an answer to the problem of meddling. We all know people who are busybodies, who feel called to not only mind their own business, but yours too. They believe they have a right to invade our privacy. This is a perverted view of love. One writer talks about the busybody's compulsive need to set everybody else in the world right. Years ago, a ministry leader told me that he often reminded his staff to feel free to have no opinion about that. <laughs> I love those words. There's, there's such good wisdom. I, I smile when I hear it because it reminds me I don't need to have an opinion about every subject in life. And if I take proper care of my own stuff, I won't have the time or energy or worry that much about what other people do or what, are, what other people are doing or saying. But Paul's third admonition is to work with our own hands. This is the answer to the problem of idleness. If you're looking for welfare reform, it appears to uh, begin right here. Paul isn't being metaphorical here. He literally worked with his own hands as a tent maker to support himself while he was preaching the gospel. And even though he was highly educated, he didn't mind hard work and he didn't find manual labor embarrassing. But by contrast, the upper classes in Greece in Paul's day despised manual labor. That's why they owned so many slaves. But Christianity came and brought a new work ethic based on personal responsibility and hard work. Remember, Jesus even was a carpenter's son. Someone has said it's a terrible thing for religious people to have nothing to do but be religious. (laughs) How true, those who get up in the morning with nothing to do but be religious are generally a great nuisance in our society and who really makes the impact for Christ in this world is the person who gets up in the morning and goes to their job and works all day and pursues their daily tasks at home and does it cheerfully. How we work is as crucial to, as, as anything we do as to how we pray or any other part of our faith Uh, There is no greater testimony than the Christian who is a mechanic in his garage or the Christian who's a teacher in her classroom, the Christian secretary at her desk or the Christian uh, nurse at the hospital or the Christian accountant keeping the company books. That is true Christianity at work. Going to church means little if we're lazy on the job. Most of us don't see our daily work as a way to worship God, but it is. What we do on Monday is just as sacred in the eyes of God as what we do in in church on Sunday. And then finally, the church owes the world an example of how we can make a difference in our society. Finally, verse 12 says, Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live, and you will not need to depend on others. Paul wraps up this whole message with a word about the impact that the life of a believer makes on the world. First, he says, we win the respect of outsiders. Let me state it negatively and positively. On the negative side, Paul's implying, don't be lazy and give the church a black eye. On the positive side, he's saying, we can make the church respectable by the way we do our jobs. Remember, we're the only Bible that some people will ever read. We are the only Christian that some people will ever meet. So what do people read and hear and see when they look at your life? Even the lowliest occupation becomes a powerful sermon when it's done with integrity and honesty and diligence and faithfulness. Common people who do their jobs with uncommon grace will never lose self-respect, and they will win the respect of the community around them. When we show that our faith makes us better workers and truer friends and better neighbors and kinder men and women, then we're truly preaching the gospel. Our lives are a message that daily draws others to Jesus Christ. And secondly, we will not be dependent on others. You know, there's a good kind of independence that we all strive for. It's that kind that comes from, you know, paying our bills on time so we don't have to steal or borrow money or run up huge credit card debt, but there's, all, there's nothing wrong with accepting help when we need it. But to think it's owed to us when we're able to help ourselves is another matter. So the question is, what does the church owe the world? If we stand back and look at the first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we get an answer. And each Christ follower is under obligation for, for three things. To live a holy life free from immorality that's the whole point of verses 1 through 8 we didn't we didn't get uh, to do a message on those verses but that's the whole point to live a holy life free of immorality secondly to live a harmonious life always increasing in our love for each other that's verses 9 and 10 and then to live an honest life living quietly Minding our own business, working with our own hands as best we're able to do that. That's verses 11 and 12. And Paul says that's the example that will make an impact on the world around us.